My name is Scott Red. I'm TD at Presbyterian of the East, and it's a joy to be with you all today, particularly a part of this uh, specific gathering talking about evangelism. You know, we were in Memphis last year, and um, if you remember, we did a lunch for the Future Society, and Lincoln Duncan was there. You know, afterwards we were talking, Lincoln Duncan being my boss, uh, the chancellor of the Republic Theological Seminary, and as we were chatting, he said, you know, I, this is really remarkable what you're doing here. He's like, you're kind of in a way providing the continuing theological education that every denomination needs. You know, he said the way that you're, you're, you're presenting me on these topics, not me, but the society that you're here, is, is actually performing this very specific need that I know I have, and I know that you all have too. And so it's just an honor to be a part of this and get to uh, experiment in how it is we can continue to develop our understanding of God's Word, what, as the Westminster Confession says, what, who He is and what duties He requires of us. Now, as Ziggy said, I'm a professor of Old Testament at the Pumpkin Seminary in Washington, D.C. Um, I love that job because I get to talk about a part of the Bible that many of our students know the least about. Okay? Um, as a matter of fact, one of my colleagues, another Old Testament professor, sometimes jokingly introduces himself as a professor of irrelevance because he says no one really cares what's in the Old Testament and they mostly think it's irrelevant. Um, or as a I remember hearing a story about a basketball player. I think, I think in, in truth, I think it was a UNLV player coming off of the court after a particularly bad game, and the coach meets him on the side and says, son, I, I don't know, are you, are you ignorant or are you apathetic? And the, and the player says, coach, I don't know, and I'm here. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people feel that way about the Old Testament. I don't know, and I don't care, but let, let me argue Today, as we're about to talk about evangelism, which is a very yes, New Testament-seeming topic, let me make an argument, if I could, a bit of an apology as to the Old Testament context, uh, the blueprint for evangelism that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, and yet are left, is left unfulfilled. Uh, at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we on this at the end there's this sort of dot, dot, dot. In my field of Old Testament studies, I, I share uh, a lot of sessions at the scholarly conferences with Jewish scholars. And one thing that's often discussed is sort of the, the nature of Christian theology versus Jewish theology. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from my Jewish uh, comrades there say things like, well, you know, you Christians, you're always looking for the answer. Right? You know, Jewish theology, we're okay with letting there be kind of terror. Let it okay with the question being unanswered. And if you actually look at the nature of the Hebrew Bible, you can see why that has developed. There is a kind of dot, dot, dot at the end of the Hebrew Bible. This is there. I mean, really, the last, the last historical event that we see in the Old Testament is Nehemiah, arguably, you could argue that maybe Esther's later, but in, in the land, okay, the last event in the land, Nehemiah is on his knees in the book, and he's praying, Lord, this is what I did. And his last words, put it in modern English, please don't forget that. That's it. That's, that's the dot, dot, dot. This will play. You're about to go to the intermission, and there will be a black stage, a dark stage, with a man alone with a spot. And he said, Lord, remember me, and curtain And that's the thing you buy. So, as we dive into the Old Testament, I want to 
recognize what we're doing is we're finding here, we're, un we're, we're unpacking the beginning of the story. But it is one story. It's one story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And it is a story, ultimately, about proclaiming, okay, proclaiming or announcing the kingdom of God. That is, the good news of the kingdom of God. So what I don't want to do this morning is just do a word study on that word that comes out of, you know, the, Basar, which is the call form of the verb, uh, you know, to be glad, and of course to make glad, Mabasar, to, to, to make glad, okay, to bring glad tidings. Um, I don't want to just do a study of that because that term is actually a very general term that's used throughout the Old Testament to talk about a variety of things. It can be meeting someone on the road and making them glad by bringing their greetings. It could be a report of a political uh, outcome. Um, it's not until we get to Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 52, 7, where it takes on this very specific meaning that we're looking at today. So I want to do a build-up to Isaiah 52, giving the context of this idea of good news or announcement of the kingdom, and then we'll dive into, okay, exactly how this is used in these later Old Testament passages. So I want to take a couple of stops along the way, give a little bit of a, uh, let me say a little bit of a prolegomena here. We're going to talk as we go about the world as a global palace. I want to start with this idea because this is actually the grand framing image of the Bible. If you're not aware, it's something you need to know. It's what the Bible begins with in Genesis, and it begins with in Revelation. Maybe did an inclusio or an envelope structure to the book. After that, I want to talk about the Proto-Evangelium. Then I want to move on to the discussion of how these promises were always for the families of the earth, and that we see that established right away in the covenant with Abraham, um, that the promises are never just for him, they are always for the whole world. I then want to actually move on to a little, a little studied section, which is how Moses talks about being uh, in relationship with the lands that are not in the promise, that are not in the we often spend a lot of time on the caravan, what Moses was supposed to do for the lands that were in the promised land, but you might miss the fact that actually Moses has given quite a few rules on how to be with the land outside. As a matter of fact, that was what most of the Old Testament text was dealing with following the conflict, is what do we do with the nations outside the land, not the nations within the land. And then lastly, I'm going to end with this Hebrew Bible projection. of the restoration era that is to come. And every discussion of that restoration era involves the expansion of God's kingdom over the face of the earth. Every Israel, every good believing second temple Jewish uh, believer would have said at some point the restoration will become complete when everyone on earth celebrates the name of the Lord. Or to use the prophet Isaiah in the verses you all know, because we sing it every Christmas, when all flesh is together, right? And all flesh is together, right? What is he saying? He's not saying all Hebrews, he's not saying all Judeans, he's not saying all Judeans and uh, maybe the Arabians and some of the Hittites around us. What is he saying? All flesh. No way that you can be more inclusive of all of you than to use that kind of language, all flesh. Together, the whole world of every tribe and tongue. So that's the background. That's where we're going to go. So let's go ahead and, and walk our way 
through this developing these themes so that we can have this larger picture of what's going on with evangelism in the Old Testament. Okay, before we do that, let me go ahead and begin us. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this study of a very broad and sweeping topic. We know, Lord, that as we come to it, it's too much for us already. We feel like the prophet Ezekiel saying, Oh Lord, you know. What is evangelism? Oh Lord, you know. We give ourselves to you in this, and we pray that you would guide us through it, that your spirit would rightly attune our hearts to your word, that we would hear it, and that we would rightly see it as your word. That our minds would give us discernment about that we, so that we might rightly and properly understand it and conceive of the ideas found within it. And I pray, Lord, finally, that with the psalmist, we too would be able to respond in the only way appropriate, which is that we would have a new song unto you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I, I go ahead and give you a spoiler there at the top. That's, that's my definition, if I've already told you, for what evangelism is. The good news is that global announcement of the kingdom of God and all that it entails. Now, I haven't, I haven't established that yet, but I'm going to go ahead and start with that. And then we're going to go ahead and work our way up to this idea. But that the good news is not merely one particular aspect of the kingdom, but it is the declaration of the kingdom of God and its success and victory over the face of the earth. How do we understand that then? Let's do that. We want to go back to Genesis 1. We want to start at the beginning. Okay? And you'll have to think, we don't have a ton of time. I wish I could spend this whole hour just unpacking how Genesis 1 is telling the story of how God built his palace. But I'll give you a few thoughts along the way so we can establish this idea because it really does help us make sense of everything else that's going to come throughout the rest of redemptive history. First of all, you have to recognize that when God is coming in and he's doing this thing of creation, of barat, right? He's, he's creating, which isn't just making, it's, it's more than that. It's making and assigning. It's, it's forming things and it's filling things. And of course, that's what we see in the Genesis story, right? We see God forming things. He separates the light from the dark, the land from the waters, or the waters below from the waters above, and the land from the waters. And what does he do? On days four through six, he then fills them. He puts lights up in the lightning bark, and he puts birds and fish, which are in Genesis 1 zoology, kind of the same type of animals. They're the ones that do this. Okay? All the other animals are stuck to the ground. Okay? But then there are the animals that do this, and those are the animals of the waters, the birds and the fish, and then lastly, the animals on earth, the vegetation. Okay? So, what do we have here? We have this formal, structured building. As a matter of fact, the building even has a roof. The, the sky itself is depicted in this story as being a roof. It's an expanse. It's like a, it's like a brass expanse. It's placed over the top of the earth, and lights are put in it to complete this structure, okay, this, this, um, uh, this building, as it were. Unless we wonder, okay, well, whose building is this then? The Lord does something that would have been very common in the sort of understanding of the ancient world. He then puts his image in it to show you whose building it is. Okay? It's one argument as to why we are called not to image God in the Old Testament arrangement. Why do we not image him? Because he has given us an image. 
Right? And he's put it there in his palace. He's put it in his temple. And then what does he tell the image to do? Very true. Right there in Genesis 1. This isn't, this isn't in Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. This is right there in that story of the building of the house that is the house of God where life can thrive and, uh, and move forward. What does he do? He puts the image there and he says, Now go out and fill, let's fill the land, fill the earth, and subdue it. So just as God has been creating and filling and then subduing, Okay? And actually, even establishing levels of, of subduing, so levels of dominion, the birds have dominion, the sun has dominion. Okay, and then he puts out Adam and Eve, man and woman, in his image. Now go continue in the manner of the work that I have been doing. Filling the earth, this is doing it. It was always a global plan. It was never meant to be local. It was always meant to be global, even before the fall. The kingdom, the house, the palace was meant to expand over the face of the earth. Okay. This is crucially important because this memory, this, this seed is never forgotten throughout redemptive history. If remember, this has always been the backdrop. And I don't want to steal any, any thunder from Aaron's presentation next, but don't forget, I'll just, I'll just plant this here and maybe you'll forget about it by the time it comes back around. But this is how the New Testament ends. Right? The New Testament picks up this theme again and says, guess what? We finally arrive in the place that God has called us to. Back in Genesis 1. see, the earth is now filled with his glory. Fill the earth is submitted. We don't need a temple anymore. The temple was a convenient structure. Okay? We don't need the temple anymore. Why? Because God doesn't dwell with man anymore. No, 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 that's not it. We don't need a temple because the whole earth is his presence fills The thing that the temple represented was the blueprint for it has now been completed. It's been built in full. Even things like the sea. And in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, the sea is always dead. The sea is where Sheol is. The sea is where you don't go, unless you're maybe one of those crazy Phoenicians. Okay, you never go out there uh, because that's where chaos and death reside. What happens in Revelation? The sea is no more. It dries up. The threat of death and chaos is now gone. But what does it do before us? It gives up the dead because death is gone. You see, this is the grand prevailing metaphor for the work of God's kingdom on earth. Genesis 1 launches the metaphor, projects it out there as a way to think about the world, the cosmic global expansion of his kingdom. And in Revelation, we see the plain land. We see it finally come to fruition. What we see in Revelation, we know this in the the final fulfillment of the subdued of the earth, the creation of the earth into God's house, God's redemptive uh, community. It's in the context of that, of course, that we see things like the cultural mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's not just a sort of general thing built into humans because it's a good thing for us to do, but that he's making us, God is appointing us as vice regents to go out and continue the work that he began. It was never a calling of stasis. It was never just about standing still. It was always about moving over the face of the earth. Okay, so that's the general context of the whole of the redemptive story. But then, of course, we have this problem now, right? We have this great, this great 
tragedy that takes place in the fall. And suddenly in the fall, that, that, that union between man and woman and God, his image they bear, uh, that union is broken, and they turn away from the God of life, they turn away from the God of thriving, the God of abundance, the God who is filling his earth with his presence and his glory. They reject him, and therefore they embrace death. However, this is where that amazing, incredible turn happens. Having turned away from God, having, having been put behind, putting themselves behind the hedge, hiding from Him, because that's what sin always does, all it brings about deceit and hiding festers. They cover themselves, and then they blame themselves. Right? They blame one another for the things that they've done. Everything seems to be going wrong. God even said, in the heat of the suit, in that day, and I don't have a lot of people in my slide. Thank you, JC. But I'll give you a little bit of humor. Okay, that's the fact of instruction. There are instructions right there. In that day, you will surely die. What is that? The infinitive absolute. And then the finite form of verb and form. And what does it say? That means, if you want to translate the modern day uh, English, as the, uh, you know, as the kids say, you're going to literally die. You're going to literally die. You will surely die. You will indeed die. You are, in fact, going to die. Okay, that's, that's what that means. So when God arrives on the scene after the fall and doesn't, which is the only thing they did, what they chose, they chose to turn away from the Lord. That's what they'll be the right and proper result of the eating of the fruit. But God doesn't do that. Instead, He says, My job, my work with you is not done. It's true that we experience spiritual death in the fall. Yeah, it's absolutely true. But I want to say that one second of breath that we experience beyond the one, one minute, one, one synapse firing off in our brains after we turn away from the God of life, if we just had that one breath of air, that in itself would have been called grace. If we had just lived a week longer to hide behind the heads, that itself would have been grace. Much less to have continued on in human history. This is what the reform tradition would call common grace. It's not just that the rain falls on wicked people and good people, too, so that all farmers can grow crops. It's not just that. It's every second of bread you enjoy following the fall. But notice, and this is now where we first touch on the topic of glory. Notice he doesn't say, I will tolerate you on earth. Okay. God doesn't say, I'll let you just keep going, but I'm going to try to figure out what that means. What does he do? He actually plans in the midst of the curse, to think cursing the serpent here, the season. He plants in the midst of that curse, our first glimmer of hope, that God's redemptive plans for this world to expand his kingdom is not over. It has not been made obsolete. This, of course, is referred to in Christian tradition as the proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, what happens here is that God is establishing that this conflict that began with the serpent is not over on the but actually will now frame the course of human history. There will be two kinds of people in the world. There will be the seed of the woman, and there will be the seed of the serpent, and they will be in conflict. In 
into the future. It will be in conflict until God comes again to put it into that conflict. The glimmer of hope here is that there is an hour of fighting chance. The glimmer of hope here is that now, the seed of the woman is the hope in which humanity can hold and wait and long for the fact that one day, one day, the seed of the woman will prevail. Now notice still, it's an open question. You will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. There's hope there, but it doesn't have the end of the sword. But even just that bit, just that fact of the seed of the woman being in conflict, perhaps having victory over the servants, is now laying a glimmer of hope of good news. In fact, it's not all that. It's not going to be all turning away and you know, return to that kind of primordial chaos or something along those lines, but that there's now hope in the conflict between the man and the woman. Excuse me, hope in the conflict between the man and the serpent, the seed of the woman and the serpent. Notice that this proto-evangelium, this, this promise of not only conflict but the prospect of victory creates a bridge between the creative purposes of God and his redemptive purposes. We now move into the phase that we call redemption, where God is continuing his work of filling the earth and subduing it, but now accounting for the reality of sin. This is where we move into redemption and reform covenant theology from what some have called covenant of works or covenant of creation now to a covenant of grace, because everything after the fall, right, is attended to or is in the context of fallenness, is in the context of sin. There now must be a shedding of blood to account for sin. And yet God is finally telling us, is coming and reminding us that his plan is still for the whole of the earth. The global program that was begun in Genesis 1 now happens in the context of this great conflict between the two seeds. But notice the call to form and to fill the earth is never rescinded. God doesn't say, now that the fall's happened, don't worry about that, that filling the earth and subduing it part. As a matter of fact, he reinstates it in the Noahic code. All right, now I want to move on, because we're moving now out of that kind of early pre-flood history, uh, where things are happening kind of in vague ways, and the descriptions that we find them are somewhat vague in the Old Testament. Now we're moving to much more kind of precise history that happens after the fall, we start getting accounts of individual humans and events going on in the land that we in a place that we can describe and understand much more easily. And it begins with the covenant of Abraham. Of course, the covenant of Abraham is very important because even though, following the fall, we have this statement of a conflict between the two seeds laid out before us, the story itself has not gone very well, has it? The conflict seems to be a very um, difficult conflict. It seems to be a very painful conflict. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to Genesis 6, it seems like things have almost descended back down into the kind of chaos and sin and horror that we uh, might have expected right after the fall. But in light of that hope of the proto-evangelical, we might thought that things might get better. But by the time we get to Genesis 6, we see oppression and exploitation. We see outcry. We see... Um, uh, you know, people doing everything that their evil hearts intend for them to do. So we have the way of blood come. God begins again anew his redemptive purposes under this family of Noah and tells them to build the earth again and do it. Again, reinstating 
the cultural mandate. But it's not until we come to Abraham, this is what's so important about the Abraham covenant. We come to Abraham and look at the promises that God makes to his family. And really it is, since the proto-evangelical, the, the promises of the covenant made with Abraham is really the first great moment. If the Proto-Evangelion shows us that there's light on the horizon, with the Abrahamic covenant, the sun finally peaks up above the mountains. God finally says, this is how I will do it. Yes, there will be conflict, but the word for humanity is now no longer one of just death. It's not just curse and toleration. But now, there is a way in which I can bless we don't want to blow past the fact that God says to Abraham right away in Genesis 12, I will bless you and your family. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. We don't want to blow past that language of blessing. Blessing is very important. It doesn't just mean being well served or, or, or being kind to someone. It is a word unto life. The fact that God would come to humans post-fall and provide them, offer them, bestow upon them, a word of life, that itself is a remarkable turn of events. Well, let's look at actually what does promise Abraham and Abraham. He picks Abraham up, he calls him up out of his country, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice what's happening here. Abraham's being called up out of Mesopotamia, he's being brought to the land and placed there in the land. He will be made a blessing. He will enjoy the blessing, the word of life of God. We'll find out later to get more details. The Abrahamic covenant comes with us, comes with us really basically in four major moments. We have it promised here. We have it ratified in Genesis 15. That's where, the, that's where God walks through the animal parts. We have it amended with the covenant sign in Genesis 17 with circumcision in Genesis 22. It's confirmed finally with uh, Abraham finally being able to trust God's word that he will provide a lamb on the million times. I would say this, the Abrahamic covenant is articulated over these four uh, modes to kind of clarify through that. But we learned there that Abraham will have a seed, he's going to have a whole nation that will come out of him. They will have a land, they will have a nation, this is going to be in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, there will be his bone, because God wants to give it to them in a just way. So the sin of the Amorites hasn't yet reached its full, so God is going to actually at the risk of his own people, put them in another country, while the sin of the Amorites reaches its full, so that when he gives the land to his people, it will then be just. Remember that we had a discussion about the conquest of the caravan. God was not willing to do the caravan when it wasn't righteous and it wasn't just. Okay, he waited for the Amorites to deserve something like that. But how do you notice this? God is identifying now with humanity in a very significant way. It's not just that it will be a seed of the woman, a seed of the serpent of conflict. But God is now identifying with humanity and saying, when people bless you, it will be like they're blessing me. And when people curse you, it will be like they're cursing me. So God is suddenly taking this family, this one man, this family, and said, 
I will identify you by meaning this But this is never just meant for you. Just like Adam and Eve, we're not just meant to say in the garden, but to form and to fill the whole thing. This is never just meant for Abraham to see this kind of level of their relationship with God. But what? What was always the end goal? All the families of the This is never just about everything and This is always that all of the families of the earth, all the families of the earth, would be blessed. Because so even in the Abrahamic covenant, and, and if you're talking with a Jewish friend, you can, you can highlight this, and they'll recognize this. And then they'll even Bible, they'll recognize, oh no, the relationship with Israel was always It was always supposed to go over the this is a key teaching in the Old Testament. And that just stands behind so many of those psalms that we read and other uh, prophetic poems where the Lord is talking about the fact that all of the earth will be filled with this Lord. From sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, from the lowest valley to the highest peak, all of the earth is filled with this Lord. It was never just about one nation or one What we find here is the situation of Genesis 6 where everyone is doing evil all the time. Mass disobedience and death prevailing in the land is now turned. We have a moment of hope in this redemptive plan for this one family. This is the first clear establishment of a redemptive plan that is a blessing. You notice that the scope is global for all the families of the earth. And we even see there are immediate implications for this. As soon as Abram goes into the valley, the Jordan Valley, as soon as he goes into the valley, he starts interacting with the kings there, and what happens? They all get to enjoy these blessings too. They find, they, they find themselves enjoying protection because of it. They, they, they find their economy enhanced because of Abraham being there in the land with them. You see, God is illustrating right away this promise to bless those who bless you has immediate implications. Abraham would have known this is not just about me and my family, this is about the whole world. Alright, when we continue on, you might say, okay, fair enough. But now that we're going to say, this is not, this is just about me. <laughs> this is just for them. This is not about going out to the nations. And yet I would argue that what the Mosaic Covenant establishes is it's developing this covenantal plan of God for redeeming the heavens and the earth and continuing his expansion over the face of the earth. What it establishes now is how God will dwell with his people. So interestingly, Abraham and God identified with Abraham, but there's no, there's no, um, there's no foundation laid, there's, there's no um, instructions for how God might dwell with Abraham. We don't, we don't get a temple there, there's no... There's no tabernacle, there's no way of a sanctuary. And God does tabernacle with it. But there's no kind of grounds for how that might happen. And Moses has finally laid out very specifically in detail. This is how God will travel with his people. As a matter of fact, God being with Israel will establish them as a special and holy people. Yes, he's made promises to Abram, but now let's see how that actually gets worked out. That God will actually move like an his tent will be in the middle of the army and will move with them as they move through the countryside. His throne will even be in their midst, so they will always know that they are not alone, but that their God is with them. 
talk about the three offices of God's redemptive arrangements, the office of prophet, priest, and king that Christ fulfilled as Messiah. He's prophet, priest, and king. So what does it mean for someone to be a kingdom of priests? Aren't you kind of blurring the lines here, Moses? I mean, you're not quite confessionally precise as you should be. But notice what he's saying. He's saying that the whole of the nation, the whole of Israel, will play a priestly role. But that indicates that they're being priestly for someone. Who are they interceding for? Who are they being the conduit through which humanity can come to God, if not for all the nations of the earth? You see, it is through Israel receiving the sanctuary of God, that is the tabernacle and the temple, that they become a kingdom of priests. They become the intercessors between God and the world. If you want to come to God, you must come to Israel. You must come to his temple. Interesting, when Moses applies this as they go into the land, because as the tabernacle finally made the temple is established in the land, the land then becomes the sanctuary of God. It becomes the place where you come to meet God. As a matter of fact, just like the garden, uh, you enter the land only properly from the east, right? As a matter of fact, if you come in from the east, just like in the garden, you run into an angel who's protecting its entrance, right? Because this is the sanctuary of God. So this is all that sanctuary theology. Joshua meets an angel as he's walking in from Moab, right? And the Jerusalem, Jericho, rather, as we read in the east. Same thing with Balaam. Balaam comes from Moab as he went into as he's coming into the land in the east, he runs into an angel. So the land itself becomes the sanctuary, and it becomes the new garden. And yet notice, even in the Mosaic arrangement, they were never meant to just save. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 20, 10 and following lays out rules for how they ought to engage with lands outside of Canaan. The assumption being that they should engage with lands outside of Canaan. And what they say is you should always sue for peace. Always start with diplomacy. Always work to build arrangements. Only when they aggress you, you go into battle. It's an interesting idea there, isn't it? We don't, we don't think of it that way. But Israel was always meant to be entering into arrangements like they do later with Hyper, right, to the north. Um, always, they were always meant to enter into these diplomatic relationships with the lands around them to expand the influence of Israel. Not only that, they were always called to receive Gentiles in. As a matter of fact, that, that, that chosen special status that Yahweh keeps referring back to when he talks to them about how they show their love for him. He says, the way I'll know that you love me is how you love those people who can give you nothing in return. Right? That, that, that they're going to be the thermometer that I'm going to use to tell whether or not you have a fever. Okay? You might act righteous. You might go to temple on, uh, on the holy days. You might act as if you're observing the law. But I'll know if you really love me, if you really believe by how you treat who? The people who are totally disenfranchised from the society around you. Or who? Because they have no stake in the land, because they've been parents. The widow, 
Because not having a family, not having a husband anymore, she's left exposed and outside the economic structure into the sojourner, the strangers, the gear, okay? Those who are from outside of the land and yet have repented in. They are members of your community. They are members of Israel. But because they're, they're Gentiles, they don't have uh, a distribution of the land. The rule of the restoration is the God before you. So what's interesting there is that God is saying that I will judge you by how you treat the nations that you receive into. So you can't get the impression from these accounts that Israel was always just about itself. Consider Rahab. Consider Ruth. Consider Naaman. Rahab and Ruth are the first part, by the way. You notice Rahab is a member of the land. She is someone who should have been under the ban when they came into the conflict. And notice, she not only joins Israel, they don't just say, well, I guess we'll let you in. <laughs> she comes into the genealogy of David. She comes into the genealogy of the same with Ruth, a Moabite. You think, well, David, Moabites are special apart. David shouldn't even be allowed to be king. He's the descendant of a Moabite. But notice, that's all washed away when she repents into Israel. You see that arrangement of the sojourn, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, Uriah. Those Gentiles who came into the land, they weren't just an auxiliary party. They were the main part of the land. As a matter of fact, there's an argument that the story of Ruth was actually told in a way to make a grand analogy for exile. What happens? Naomi and her family leave the land, and when they return back in, their, their fortune and their success is now tied directly with the Gentiles. Even their Messiah, even their king, will be tied in with their relationship with the Gentiles. Ruth comes back in with Naomi, and now is fully a part. Ezekiel lays out and he says in the restoration community, even the Gentiles will now be given a portion in the land. That was always the plan. It was always meant to be global. And that for humanity is good news. Alright, so that brings us to, I know I'm going quickly, but now we talk about Abraham, we talk about Moses, Moses and the plan for expansion. Uh, notice, by the way, that Moses himself lays out, there's that second point there, that this plan for the plan for God to move over the face of the earth would include exile. Moses himself in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 20 through 30, lays out the fact that you will be scattered out to the nations, but then after you repent, I will gather you back in. And then Deuteronomy 30 interestingly says, and when I gather you back in, you will come back into a better situation, the situation of your forefathers. In other words, What does he say? He's been dragged out. After he's told Israel, by the way, you're now a pit spot. You can't repent. It's too late. It's all over. They're dragging out the door. And Jeremiah says, even now the Lord says, if you repent, I will let you do this. God loves you. He loves to lessen the judgments. But exile is a part of God's limited expansion over the face of the earth. And that now brings us to perhaps 
precise question. In the Old Testament, what is the bearing of good news? What is that you on the other? What is that good word, that good message? And we see this term most most commonly in the New Testament is referred to back in Isaiah 52, 7. And so this is the passage, of course, you all know it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings Nebaseh, right? The good news, the bearer of glad tidings, who publishes shalom, peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. I think what we get there in that last line is a nice, it's a nice encapsulation of what we can call the good news. Your God reigns. Now we have to remember, though, look at the context of this. We don't want to just take these things out of context. This is a beautiful passage. I want to embroider it on a pillow, right? Leave it on my couch. And yet, if you go and you read the context of this passage, do you know who he's talking to? Do you know the people who are singing this song? They are slaves and captives who have just gotten word that their oppressors have been overthrown. You go back and read the immediately preceding passage of the He's describing the judgment that will come to the nations who have enslaved and exiled Israel. So this brings us to an important part of Old Testament notions, and I would argue New Testament notions too, of the good news. That the peace, the truth that our God reigns. We have to remember that there are complementary parts of this. The good news is the dawning of the restoration, the redemption of God's people. Excuse me, let me go back. Okay. But remember that it includes this notion of judgment. You see, the good news is that your oppression has been thrown off of you in the restoration idea. In other words, those evil ones, those enemies of God who curse you and therefore are going to be cursed, they have been oppressing you. They have been holding you back. They have been pushing you against the worship of the living God. They have been telling you, sing the songs of Zion while you work for us because we like the way we sing. You see, the good news for the exile is that the oppressor has been thrown. And we have to remember in the Old Testament, there are two sides of the salvation coin. There's the judgment, God's justice, perfect justice against evil. And therefore, on the flip side of that, there is the mercy and grace that He shows us. If you remember when Moses is introduced to God on the mountain and God passes before him, God Moses said, I want to see you. I, I want to know you're with me. That's what Moses is trying to do. Like, like Abraham, he's trying to confirm that you're really with us. And the Lord says, if you see me, you'll die. But you can see the backside of my goodness, is what he says. And he passes in front of him. You know what the Lord does? He sings a song about his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, but who will by no means acquit the guilty, who will by no means let judgment go unmet or sin go unmet. It's interesting, it's kind of illogical. We expected you to start with justice and then talk about mercy. You have to have mercy if you don't have justice on the front end. But notice how God does it. He leads with his grace, He leads with his mercy. 
I'd actually say for those of us and members of our congregation who are struggling with the fact that dealing with the aftermath of their own sin, and they're struggling with fatalism, and they're thinking, you know what, Lord, I, I deserve this. You know, how do I, you know, I, I have cancer because I'm a lifelong smoker. Right? I, I, my, my wife left me because I'm a drunk. Okay? That my, my, my relationships are terrible because of all of my anger that's embedded inside of me and my descendant sins. I deserve these things. One thing we can be reminded of when we go to the Lord in prayer, in those arrangements, we can be reminded of the fact that God loves to show us. He leads us with And yet we can't forget the fact, and I think sometimes we do as Christians, that God's justice is just, is just as beautiful as His mercy. We have to be careful of thinking of God's justice as um, the bad news. I, I, I know how good how good this is, but I'm just saying, be careful about going too far. Justice is not God's bad news. God's just character is good. As a matter of fact, if you're living in a society where oppression stands, if you're living in a society where there is great inequity and oppression and, and, and exploitation, then the reality of God's justice is not bad news. As a matter of fact, I think we as Christians have to be careful. Have we become so complacent that we want to get rid of the idea of justice and judgment altogether? Because we're pretty comfortable. We don't want things to change. You see, when God comes and brings judgment against Sodom, it's not just because he's, um, you know, he's a little too crude or something like that. He's bringing judgment against Sodom because he's helpful. That's what it's okay. I've heard the help. The story of Sodom is a story of exploitation and oppression. And we should rejoice in God's judgment. And yet remember that the good news, the glad tidings that, that makes our face glad, and it's actually probably sort of the, the root here, uh, the, 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 probably the, the sort of primary meaning is of, of, of the good tidings is that it's the thing that makes you glad, it makes your face glad. Whether it's a greeting, seeing an old friend, being reminded of a warm memory, or hearing good news, it involves judgment against the enemies of God. The other way Isaiah describes this final expansion of the period is as an imperial expansion. This is a passage of Isaiah that's not often remembered, and it's fascinating. Here he is in Isaiah 66, at the very end of the book, and he's talking about the restoration period that is to come. And he says, in the restoration period, when those declarations of good news are going out because of the victories of our king, as he stands over the face of the earth and frees the captives, he says, this is how he's going to do it. It's very detailed here, and this feels very much like ancient Near Eastern empire building. Notice what Isaiah says. This is the Lord speaking. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. So notice again the global implications of the restoration expansion. It's going to be all nations, all tongues. This is not just for Israel. This is for all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nation, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan. There's Javan. That's, where we get that's, that's a Hebrew way of saying Ion, okay? Ionic Greek. So these are Greeks, Javan. Okay, uh, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory 
among the nations. So what's he doing here? His army standing on the face of the earth. But as he does, he takes towns and then he sends out survivors from the town to go tell other towns the king is coming. Don't try to stand against him. Okay? Or you'll lose. Open your gates. Let him in. See this language here? I'm going to send out survivors to tell of my glory. And they shall bring all of your brothers, that is the elect of Israel, from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and on chariots and litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem from all the nations, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take the peace This is a very ancient Near Eastern way of doing things. We actually can see Nebuchadnezzar do something along these lines. If you remember when he's coming to Babylon, this is not Nebuchadnezzar. When he's coming up against Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day, you remember how in, in, in that story he goes to Lachish Because Lachish is an easier city to conquer. What does he do? After conquering Lachish, he then sends his messengers from Lachish to Jerusalem to say, You should also go to Because look at how I just took Lachish. Very any way of doing empire. And the Lord says here, after having watched his people experience this very what he says here is, I will expand my empire too, and will cover cover the face of will be by taking survivors from the villages and towns of the world and sending them out to other villages and towns to their brothers and sisters so that they can also tell. Victory of the king. I know you all know this, and I'll let Aaron pack it, of course, much more. The Great Commission is a global commission. And yet, of course, we're not commissioned to go out with swords and guns and shields, but we're still called to go out with what we will later in the Reform Tradition call the means of grace discipling, baptizing, teaching of God's word. That's how this kingdom is finished. And what are we doing? We're going into villages. His, his emissaries are going into villages. Okay, bear with me. He's going to his language here, right? They're conquering the village and sending out survivors to tell others about the victory of the great king. That's who you are. You have been killed in holy war. You no longer live, but Christ lives with you. And now you go out as an emissary and say, the king is coming. You should remember this. Part of our good news includes a statement of God's justice. The king is coming. But guess what? Your sins have to be judged. But they can be judged by Christ. They can be judged on Christ on the cross. Our good news is not good news of forgive and forget. Our good news is that God is just. And praise God that he's Justice is meted out on us, either in the final judgment or in Christ's cross. And that's the good news that we have to offer as those who have been proved. I know holy war language is not popular and it's not good today, but we have to be careful about that, absolutely. We have to be very clear that our weapons are the means of grace. It's the sword of us. We have to be absolutely clear about and yet we can't forget the fact that God is not happy to settle on one small part of real estate in this earth, or one small group of people. 
people that he has always had global plans. And our calling, as those who are emissaries of his kingdom, are to articulate and to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. I close with this, and I'm not going to say, Zach's going to talk more about this, but I think this is really interesting. As I was thinking about this on the way over, uh, I asked my wife, Go out and question. And she's like, and that is interesting. Why is that? Is that, is that just occasional? Is it because Jesus is sitting there and they're fishing and he says, Oh, you like fishing? I'll make you fish as a man. And I, I would just add this, this is interesting. Jesus could do that in a lot of instances. Why does he do that there? Why does he say they're you're fishing and now we're trying to make a play out of what you're doing right there? There is another place in the Bible where a man is described as a fisher of men. It's not, it's, it's not a common metaphor. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of fishing metaphors or fishing analogies. But there is one, and it's when Habakkuk is describing Nebuchadnezzar as he's expanding his empire over the face of the earth. And he says, he goes out, all of mankind are fish, and he gathers them up in his net. He gathers them up with his hook and with his dragon. But what does Nebuchadnezzar do wrong? He then worships his hook and his dragon. The message of Habakkuk, by the way, is that yes, the Lord is commanded up to the Nebuchadnezzar's hand as judgment. Okay? But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't recognize it. The, the Babylonian doesn't recognize that it's actually God who's giving him the victory. Jesus is saying, interestingly, he's using this imperial language to describe the evangelism that he has brought these people to. Now, of course, it's spiritual Go out and confess his men, not like the Babylonians, but go out and do it like Jesus our Lord, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom of the kingdom of God's Let me close this in prayer. And then, uh, do we need to have some, a break? Let me close this in Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless us and keep us and watch over us. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue on today, that you would unpack for us the great and high calling to which we have been called, that is, those who proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's in his name.